Good morning. I'm Matt. If I haven't met you yet, hello. I want to welcome once again all of you guys here and everyone who are uh, joining us online. We're so thankful that you are still engaged with us. Uh, okay, so I've, I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, I've got, this might be an oversimplification, but it seems to me like every uh, movie and TV show that we ever watch, they're all built around this same exact concept, right? Something's happening. Uh, things are getting bad. Things are starting to go downhill, falling apart, and then something happens. Something happens. The hero saves the day. The guy gets the girl. Uh, the bad guy dies. Uh, the, the home team wins the game. Uh, the planet is saved. All of those things, right? Or Luke Skywalker shows up at the end. Sorry. Uh, the two dojos join forces at the end. Subtle spoilers there for you. Or the, based on the last movie that I saw, uh, the toys get reunited with their owner. Um, so, so the idea is that something happens. Something happens and it changes everything. You see, I think when, we, when it comes to uh, movies and shows that we watch, it's actually really predictable. I mean, that, these things aren't that surprising, but it doesn't stop us from resonating with it. From resonating with this idea of something happening I think all of us here, we would agree, like, we, we want something to happen. Maybe you're in a season, in a place in your life right now where you're, you're longing for God to intervene. You want something to happen, something to change. Maybe a something small, it could be something large and huge, and, and, and just, uh, but the idea is that we have this longing for something to change. Well, it turns out that the Bible is filled with stories, with situations, Real-life situations where things seemed hopeless, where things were falling apart, things were going downhill, and then all of a sudden, something happened. Something changed. Things pivoted. God showed up. God intervened. And that's what we're going to see today as we're continuing on in our study through Acts. We're going to look at an amazing, amazing story. Maybe a familiar one to some of you, but we're going to be looking at an amazing story that really showcases God's ability to show up and God's ability to save. Uh, we're continuing on in our uh, series through Acts, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those up, turn them on, turn, tap your way to Acts 9. We're going to be there in just a minute. Uh, so far, what we have seen is that in, in the book of Acts that the author Luke has been tracing the unstoppable spread of the gospel and he's been, he's been tracing that. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel is being spread. And today, in chapter 9, we're actually going to come. He's going to point our attention to what is probably considered the most famous conversion in all of the history of the church. I know that some of you are thinking, that's Kanye, right? We're going, we're talking about, I didn't know he was in the Bible. No, no, long before Kanye, which I was like, that's a cool thing. Long before him, there was a guy named Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who's also known as the Apostle Paul. And let me just say a quick, a quick uh, word about that. I don't know what you, I think I just, I assumed that there was a moment where uh, Saul became Paul. There was like a, that Jesus met him and he said, your name is now Paul. And there was nothing in the Bible about that. I was looking for it and I couldn't find it. So Saul and Paul, you're going to have to forgive me if I use those interchangeably. I'm just doing what the Bible is. Like it's, it's literally, there, there's no point where uh, Saul officially becomes Paul. It's not Jesus who renames him at some renaming ceremony. I know that renaming a person is actually a big deal throughout Scripture, but that actually doesn't even happen to Saul. 
It's actually Luke who decides in chapter 13, eventually just says, so there's Saul who's also known as, a.k.a. Paul, and then in chapter 13 when Paul, when Paul sets off on his uh, missionary journey, that's when the name sticks. He just goes on with Paul from there on out. And so forgive me if I'm going back and forth today with Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul. They sound the same, right? Uh, but that's where uh, we're going today. So it's the, the conversion of Saul. And we first met Saul back in chapter 7, at the, at the end of chapter 7, right at the very uh, beginning of chapter 8. And we, we, we hear about this guy named Saul who was present at the execution of Stephen, a disciple of Jesus. And so right off the bat, when Saul is introduced, I mean, Luke brings him in as this, this crazy, gnarly antagonist in the story. And right off the bat, we're getting, I don't know if you're reading the story, you're like getting some creepy vibes from this guy, Saul. You see, he was not only present at, but he was the one who was approving of Stephen's execution. And if you remember, we were told in, in the story that it was on the day that Stephen was executed, he was murdered, that great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And it's likely that Saul is the one leading the charge. Really quick, back in Acts 8, it says, On that day, the day that Stephen was uh, martyred, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And then verse 3, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. You see, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we, d- we can't miss this. That it is persecution that fuels the spread of the church, that scatters the church, that spreads the gospel. You see, all the way back at the beginning of Acts, Jesus had told his disciples that you're going to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But up until this point, the church had really been largely concentrated in Jerusalem. But it's only when persecution happens that the church spreads, and as the church spreads, the gospel does as well. There was an early, early Christian author who said this, his name Tertullian. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, Saul was trying to stamp out what he believed to be a heretical sect, this group known as the Way. That was the name for the early church. They were just called The Way. But in doing so, the church scattered and the gospel continued to spread. So just think about the irony with that. I I think about this dynamic, you know, when you're trying to pull weeds out. If you guys got like those, those weeds, when you pull them, they're filled with tiny little seeds, little dandelions or whatever they are, and you pull them out, you're like, get out of here, you ugly weed. Like you pull it out, it's all, and seeds go everywhere, and you're like, no! There's only, I mean, that's, there's, there's something similar there. He's, we're trying to kill something, and it just spreads it. Anyways, if you guys have a way of getting rid of those things, let me know. But Saul, you see, he intended to destroy the church, but he ends up disseminating the gospel. And so what was intended to crush the movement ends up being the fuel to advance it. And so word has spread that this group... There's members of this group called The Way that have made their way to Damascus. And this news reaches Saul, and he is likely furious. I mean, he had it out for the church. He was probably fuming and furious. And this brings us to chapter 9. Look with me. Verse 1. 
Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether man or woman, that he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. I'm going to stop there for a second. See, the thing we have to remember is that Saul, he sincerely believes that he's on God's team. He sincerely believes that he is doing God a favor, that he is an asset. He is he's working in tandem with God he's, by killing Christians. I mean, he even said later on in Galatians, we read about his way of life in Judaism, how intensely he persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of his own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. You see, Saul was a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee, I mean, he was probably the number one draft pick. And he wasn't acting, you know, he wasn't subtle about this. He was intense, and he's not acting as a rogue agent. He's working in tandem with the Sanhedrin, which is the highest ranking of the, the Jewish uh, leaders. And so he goes, and he, we see he gets his paperwork. It's kind of like getting a warrant or papers for extradition. And he sets off for Damascus. Imagine if you are in Damascus and their word got there, because later on we, we know that the people there had heard about what's going on. But imagine you're, you're there and you're, you hear the news that Saul, the great persecutor of the church, who's likely imprisoned and even killed people I know, that he's on his way here. He's on his way here. Think about what you'd be thinking and feeling. So Saul and his entourage, they pack up and they set off. But then on the way, something happens. Verse 3. Now, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so this is a pretty crazy story. And I don't know about you, but it seems like there's a lot that's left out. It leaves a lot of questions in my mind. There's actually two other places in Acts where this story gets repeated and gets talked about. And it you know, fills in a little bit of the details. But it still leaves you wanting so much more. But what we see happening here is that the great arrester of Christians gets arrested by Christ. Or I'll put it this way. Saul was on his way to arrest the way, and he ends up getting arrested by Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So this is what is known as Saul's conversion. You know, conversion, I don't, conversion is a weird word that I think gets used a lot, and, and it's, you know, it kind of can sound like an old school religious jargon kind of word, like, yeah, he got himself converted. You've been converted? Have you been, you know, conversions is that, it's one of those words that we I don't know. It sounds a little bit like religious jargon. So today, what I want to do is I want to I spend some time looking at 
what this passage teaches us, what we can learn and glean from this passage about what conversion is and what conversion does. Those are the two things I want to spend some time looking at. What conversion is and what conversion does. First, what conversion is. There's a few things that we can find in this passage that describe what conversion is. The first thing that we see is that it's God's pursuit of us. Conversion, it begins with it's God's pursuit of us. You know, it's, it's really easy to think that to get saved, it's the process of us making our way to God, climbing our way up to Him, proving to Him that we're serious, that we're worthy. You know, but here we see that Saul, didn't, Saul isn't making a decision for Jesus. You know, that, that's kind of the, the, the way that we put it. Oh, you know, he made a decision for Jesus. Saul doesn't make a decision for Jesus the only decision he made was to go persecute the church of Jesus. But it's actually Jesus who makes a decision for Paul. You see, it was Christ who decided for him and Christ who intervened in his life. You know, another thing that we tend to think is that God is surveying the landscape, looking around. He's looking for the squeaky clean, the nice, the tidy, the well put together, the person who's actually sincere about him, that he's looking for that person. You know, we tend to think that God is looking for assets, not liabilities. And we'll tend to think of ourselves as in one or the other, right? But it's this story, it actually destroys every construct that you and I have about, about the kind of person that God loves to save. It flips all of our notions on their head. I mean, look at Saul. He's not some, he's not some dude seeking out the truth of Jesus. He's not even some neutral kind of party. No, he's directly and passionately opposing Jesus. And what we see is that we, we learn that God loves, loves to pursue people with a dirty record. Because here's the truth. <laughs> people with a dirty record are all that there are. I mean, that is all of us. God loves to pursue people with a dirty record, and those are the only kind of people that there are. You see, we find out in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet seeking him, wrong, no, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians it said, but, but because of the great love for us, God's great love for us, who, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. You see, God, he pursued us not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. Dead in sin. Spiritually dead. But what I love about this story, it shows that there's no one that is out of the reach of God's loving clenching arms. No one. No one is out of, out of reach. I mean, Saul, he knew that he was a man with a dirty record. He knew that he was a, dirty, a man with a dirty record. And later on, he even said, like, I think God, God saved me in order to show everyone that <laughs> you can get saved too. I mean, he said, for this very reason, in 1 Timothy, he said, for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's an example of, of the, uh, 
the amount, the, the length, the width, the height, the depth that God will go to in order to reach and to save. So in other words, if God could save him, he could save anyone. No one can outrun, no one can outpace or outtire. I love the term, the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven will catch you. <laughs> so, conversion is God's pursuit of us. It's also, secondly, it's encountering the real, the real Jesus. See, Saul, he encounters the real, living, resurrected Jesus. You see, true salvation is not some encounter with some vague deity. It's not an encounter with some nebulous notion of, of God or some vague spirituality or even a higher power, that, an unnamed higher power. No, true conversion, salvation is, being, is encountering the real, living Jesus, the real Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Earlier in Acts, Paul, not Paul, Peter, he said this, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You see, it's, it's not an encounter with practices, principles, or some kind of plan. It's not an encounter with, with religious principles, spiritual practices, or some plan for self-improvement. No, it's an encounter with a person. It's an encounter with a person, namely Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord what happens when you encounter Jesus? Well, thirdly, conversion is this. Conversion is, it's coming to the end of yourself. It's surrendering to Jesus. You see, when Saul encounters Jesus, he's knocked down to the ground. He's brought low. He's completely undone. See, the light shines all around him. He falls to the, the ground he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You got to think, in that moment, what was the impact that those words had on Saul? Hearing, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, in that moment, those words were a complete and utter refutation of all that he had been. One commentator, he put it this way, he says, at that moment, his world crumbled. Everything that Saul had believed and the strict way of life to which he had given his passionate allegiance was suddenly revealed to be out of focus and off-center. Rather than leading him to God, his training and his understanding of the Old Testament had led him to reject God's son. And what we see is that God lovingly strips away everything that Saul had depended upon to make his life matter, to give him meaning, to make sense of his life. See, in that moment, his entire life was now laid bare and was seen as but a vapor. You see, up until that fateful day, I think Saul was, was convinced that he was on God's team. But when that light shone upon him, his entire religious resume completely withered away. And in that moment, he was now poised 
and ready. He was, wasn't leaning in, lean in or on his own resume, his own weak and flimsy righteousness. No, and he was now poised and ready to receive a righteousness that was not of his own, but from Jesus Christ. You see, in conversion, desperation always precedes deliverance. In that moment, when everything is laid bare, when you see life for what it is, you see everything that you have clinged to and held on to to give yourself a sense of security and meaning and purpose, or even this is what makes me pleasing before God, or this is what can, I think will guarantee me some kind of future in heaven, or whatever it is that we're leaning on, if it's smaller than Jesus, it can't save. And when we realize that, when the light shines through and we see the futility of all that we've depended upon and leaned on, it's in that moment we can feel, it can be an, a, a very desperate feeling. Everything is stripped away. Everything is taken away. The, our feet are kicked out from underneath us. We're on the ground. We're laid bare. But desperation precedes deliverance. There's that realization that we, ha- that we are broken, that we are sinful, and that there is nothing that we have done or can do that will ever be enough to change our condition. In other words, we need help from the outside. So when God's, when his light, his gracious light shines in our heart, it violently dismounts us. It throws us to the ground. Another way to put it is that conversion is the process of God killing us so that he can resurrect, resurrect us as new. He lovingly strips away everything that we've depended upon for safety, significance, security, and brings us to the end of ourselves. Desperation precedes deliverance. And we see that the light was so bright. I can't imagine this, but the light was so bright that it left Saul completely blinded. And I like how one author put it. He says, he who had expected to enter Damascus in in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled, blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. The very same mouth which had been breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples was now breathing out praises and prayers to God. The raging lion had been changed into a bleeding lamb. So ironically, Saul here, he's blinded, but for the first time in his life, he's seeing clearly. So Saul was experiencing his conversion. God had pursued He had encountered the real, living, resurrected Jesus, and he had come to the end of himself in surrender to Jesus. So that's that's what conversion really is. As we see from the story, what conversion is, is those things. And let's look at now, what does conversion do? What conversion does? Continuing on here in verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, hint, hint, come in and lay his uh, his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, I've heard from many people about this man. And how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer on behalf of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fish scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Again, there's a lot in these 10 verses that we could talk about, but I want to hone in on three things that really provide for us a picture of what conversion does. The first thing that we see, this might even be something that we just read and pass right over, but it changes your identity. The core of who you are is changed, namely from sinner to saint. You see, we read past these words almost as if like, the, just, oh, that's fine. Okay, cool, it's a saint. But this is huge. Notice Ananias' use of the word saint to describe the Christians that are there in Damascus. Saints. If you are in Christ, this is true of you. You see, the term saint, it, it means holy. It means one reserved. Someone set apart for God. And I know that for some of us, maybe on our, with our backgrounds or wherever we come from, that we can kind of feel a little uncomfortable with that. Like, oh, I'm fine talking about I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a saved person, but saint? Come on. But it's interesting that the New Testament from this verse and on, it actually uses the term saint to describe Christians at least 60 times. You can look back, it, the, the term sinner is, is never used. I'll say it's never used to describe a Christian. Look for yourself. Look, at, look into that. The term saint is what is used to describe you as a person in Christ. And the term saint refers to something incredible that happened to us at conversion. You see, at conversion, God brings you out of death and he puts you into life. He takes you out of Adam's family line and he puts you into Christ's family line. You go from being a sinner to being a saint. I know some of you are thinking, but okay, I get that that's cool, but I still sin. Doesn't that make me a sinner? And the truth is, you're confusing identity with activity. You see, we are not what we do. We're not sinners because we sin. We're born sinners. It's the nature that we were born with. That's the nature that we inherited from Adam. So you see, being a sinner is not, first and foremost, a behavior problem. Being a sinner is a birth problem. We don't behave our way, perform our way, behave our way into a new identity. We have to be born into it. So when God saves us, this is what we mean by that old school term, born again. It's another one of those terms. He's born again. You born again? At salvation, at conversion, we are born again because that's what is needed for a new identity. We're born of the Spirit. The conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus probably didn't even make sense to him. But new birth is needed for new identity. It's birth, not behavior, that determines identity. And you see, the Christian life is not a life of us working really hard and trying to earn this saintly identity. No, it's a life lived of believing it, trusting it, and expressing it. 
We're not trying to earn something. We're living to express our identity. And what's cool is that in Christ, you're a saint on your worst day. On your best day, on your worst day, doesn't matter. Because being a saint is about your birth, not your behavior. So receive that truth, believe that truth, and watch life change. So important. Understand your identity. The second thing that we can see from here and glean from it is that conversion. What does conversion do? It, It gives you a purpose. Jesus tells Ananias that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I love that. When God converts you, he also calls you. When he saves you, he doesn't sideline you. He doesn't sideline you. No, he gives you a purpose. You see, Jesus had a very, very specific purpose for Saul, namely to go and to reach the Gentile world. And notice, too, that when you, when you look at Saul, I mean, the guy is passionate, he is zealous, he's fired up. And when, when God saves him, he doesn't do a complete memory wipe, completely a different person. He doesn't do a memory wipe, a personality wipe on Saul. No, now it's just Saul's personality and passion is redirected. It's redirected in a redemptive way for the purpose of the gospel. It's still the same passionate, zealous guy, with a redirected purpose. And I think it's easy for us to think, okay, that's cool for Saul. That's cool about what God did with him, but what about me? I mean, that's, I feel a little different. And I love what Ephesians 2 says, for we are God's handiwork. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, by the way, God prepared in advance for us to do. So I love when you think about that, you, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have received new birth, new identity. You are created from the ground up for good works. If you're created for good works, what does that say about who you are? It means that you and good works that God has prepared for you to do are completely compatible. Completely compatible. It means that you are a new creation built from the ground up for good And what's cool is that we now, we get to experience our daily life, the Mondays, Monday through the Friday, the weekends included, we get to look around. We get to enter into life each day being aware of, God, show me what is it that you have called me to do today? What's the good work that you have in store for me today? What's the, we get to be aware. We're looking around to walk into what God has already prepared for us to do. It means we get to live a life of availability. And what I love is that we see a great example of this in the person of Ananias. He was used by Jesus to go and minister to Saul. And of course, Ananias is going to have some serious reservations. Like, are you kidding me? I've heard about this guy. He's coming here. I know what he's coming here to do. And it's the, honestly, the chances are likely that Ananias, if Jesus didn't intervene in Saul's life, Ananias would have been one of the people that Saul would have been dragging back to Jerusalem in chains. Of course he had reservations. But what we see is that he was available, he was obedient, and look what he got to do. He got to go and minister to Saul's needs, both his spiritual needs and baptism, but also his physical needs, restoring his eyesight. He probably was one of the people who helped him get fed. His spiritual and his physical needs were ministered to. So conversion, it changes your identity, 
it gives you a purpose. Lastly, it brings you into a new family. Let me ask this question. Why the three days? Why the three days of waiting? Why not just meet Saul out on the road, hash it all out with him, have the conversation, get him converted, and then give him his missionary call and then send him on his way? Why all of the extra stuff? Why the, the blindness, the three days of blindness coming in? Why the twin visions that he gives to Ananias and he also gives to Saul? Why all of that? Why bring uh, Ananias into this? This seems like a lot of unnecessary details. And this is Jesus. You can, you can save somebody. You can also just do it yourself. But I love what this provides us. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus bringing Saul into the family bringing him into the church. You see, when God converts us, he also brings us into the family. Jesus used Ananias to welcome Saul in. Notice when he says, he walks into that room, and Saul, I don't, I gotta imagine how pathetic he looked and pitiful, just, he's just, you know, blind, and he just had three days to mull over everything that his life had been up, up until that point. And he comes in, and he hears this voice say, brother, Brother Saul, God sent me to you, brother. I think it was probably so important for Saul to hear that, to hear those words. You see, it was the words of Jesus out in that road that completely reduced him down to nothing. And then it was the words of Ananias that Jesus used to begin to build him back up. God's plan was only after Ananias laid his hands on Saul that his eyesight would come back. And I think that provides us an amazing picture of the healing power of community. Jesus could have totally taken care of the blindness and, and, and given him his eyesight back, but he decided to use the church. You see, when you persecute the church, you're, per you're persecuting Jesus. Saul. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. When you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. There's, there's union there. There's one and the same. Jesus has chosen to identify himself with his body, his people. But the, it's also true that when the church cares for you, that's Jesus caring for you. That's Jesus caring for you. And I love that when Saul gets his eyesight restored. The very first face that he saw when he regains his sight was the face of Ananias, his brother in Christ. The first thing that Saul sees was the very thing that God was calling him to spend the rest of his life building, the church. So we've seen today something happened. One day, on a road in the middle of nowhere, Jesus showed up. Something happened. Everything changed. Saul's life was never the same. He experienced a radical, radical conversion. And many centuries later, we're here today. We are we encountering the, we're encountering the same truth. You see, we have a God who is a pursuer. Our God is a God who pursues that there's no one that is beyond his reach. And he doesn't wait for people to clean up their act. As I mentioned, he loves to save people with dirty records because people with dirty records are the only kind of people that there are. 
But in conversion is encountering the real Jesus. It's realizing our desperate need for him. It's surrendering to him. And we've also seen that conversion, it radically changes our identity. It gives us a purpose. And it brings us into a new family. So in closing, as the band makes their way back up, let me ask the question about where are you? I got I to gotta uh, imagine that in this size group and the people watching online, that there are people that fall into the, the category of unconverted. And the, the message that I really want you to hear today is that, that you are not beyond God's reach. You haven't gone too far. There's no way that you can outrun and outpace the hound of heaven. You're not too far out of reach. And maybe today for the first time there's something clicking that you realize like Jesus, it, the real Jesus, that I need him. Maybe, maybe that's finally clicking. And maybe what you want to do is like, okay, I want to I respond to that. And you're going to be tempted to try to perform your way back. Oh, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. I'm going to make it work. <sighs> Stop. God is inviting you to come to him with the open hands, open and empty hands of faith to receive, to receive his life. You need new identity. You need new birth. That's something that we can only receive by faith. So that's you. Tell him, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Come in. Live in me. Make me new. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sin, my stuff, my mess. Thank you for that the dirty record you have taken and removed as far as the east is from the west. You have given me your perfect record. That's you. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe there's some of you, you're like, I know I'm converted. And maybe they're, they're, you're in a season of just feeling like, man, I, I, I used to feel so free. I used to feel that this was an exciting thing. I used to feel free, but now I'm feeling a lot of fear. I'm feeling burdened. And the message today for you, I want you to know that you remember who you are in Christ. Remember that something happened, that the cross happened, the resurrection happened, the cross worked, the resurrection worked, that you are new in Christ, that nothing that you feel or nothing that you do or not do can ever change that. You would believe that. Know that you have a new identity. Know that you have a purpose, that Christ is in you. He wants to live his life in you. He wants to express himself through you. And know that you belong to a family that is waiting to love you. A family that needs your love and a family that's waiting to love on you. So whatever it is that you are hearing today, I want you just to, as we sing this final song, just be thinking and respond to it. Respond. Today's the day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, Lord. And by your spirit right now, God, would you minister to our hearts? And I pray that my friends here, God, we would all would, would take that next step, Lord, receiving the life and the good news that you have so freely given us. I'm responding to you right now, Lord. Thank you for this time. Amen.